The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. April 13th, 2017. Thank you very much for listening and for shopping through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. Even with everything going on this past week, Syria, North Korea, United Airlines, today's top story is even bigger, even bigger than the Russia investigation. I am not pleased to report that the top story is the apparent incompetence of the Trump administration, and there is enough public evidence to prove that to be fact, not opinion. You can see it in Trump's press secretary. You can see it in the words and deeds of Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. You can see it in U.S. Customs and Immigration Enforcement, which, since Trump took office, has put out weekly reports so inaccurate, it just stopped putting them out while it regroups. The Trump White House itself is in chaos. It began in the first days of the administration when six staffers were fired for failing their background checks. Then National Security Advisor Mike Flynn was fired for lying about his ties to Russia. The first Deputy National Security Advisor was also fired then. Now the second Deputy National Security Advisor has been removed from that post and reassigned to work in Singapore. A top White House communications guy was also fired, and last week we heard that Steve Bannon had been removed from the National Security Council and that he and presidential son-in-law Jared Kushner were doing battle. Hundreds of executive branch jobs remain unfilled three months in. One-third of our government is grossly understaffed. The White House says everything's fine. Trump and the Republicans, by the way, have for now dropped their plans to revamp the tax code. The failure of their health care efforts are part of the reason. The failure of Trump to release his own tax returns is another. It would be hard to see which tax reforms benefit Trump if we don't know the details of his taxes, which we still do not. Most concerning of all, in the midst of tensions that also involve Russia, you can see it in our policy on Syria, if we even have a policy. After all, we have now bombed both sides in the Syrian civil war. The Trump White House has now had six different Syria policies in the past two weeks and had four conflicting explanations of what we did or did not accomplish in bombing that Syrian airbase. The U.S. bombing of that Syrian base was a move Gallup says nearly half of Americans support because it punished Syria's government for killing more innocent citizens with the nerve gas known as sarin. If it was meant to boost Trump's standing in the polls, it did not. There has not been what pollsters would call a bump. Trump tweeted a dozen times that President Obama should stay out of the Syrian mess when that country gassed 1,400 civilians in 2013, but he sent American warplanes into Syria when 70 more were gassed. Even as recently as two weeks ago, the Trump administration was saying the fate of Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad should be left to the Syrian people, the very people al-Assad was killing. There are reports Trump's daughter Ivanka had a lot to do with the bombing, urging her father to act despite his previous instincts. The Guardian counted five Syria policies, and the administration has since changed it again. So, two weeks ago, it was al-Assad can stay or go. After al-Assad used sarin gas to kill 70 people, the Trump administration said al-Assad must go. With fears this White House would involve us in another war, it adjusted itself again, saying al-Assad's fate was really up to Russia, that all the U.S. wants to do is stop the chemical weapons and the barrel bombs. But Syria uses barrel bombs every day, which only made fears about a war with Syria increase, not decrease. So the administration tweaked its policy again, saying, okay, not in response to barrel bombs. So there you have it, the Trump policy on Syria, until it changes again, while a 1,000 U.S. troops are on the ground there in harm's way. And then there are the Trump administration accounts of the damage we did in the U.S. bombing raid in response to that gassing. There have been a handful of those explanations as well. First, we were told by Press Secretary Sean Spicer that, quote, over 20% of the fixed-wing aircraft from their entire Air Force was destroyed. On Friday came the administration statement saying 20% of the Syrian Air Force's 7th wing was taken out. The Pentagon then chimed in, saying it was about 20 aircraft. And that same day, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who was in on the strategy meeting in which the bombing was ordered for reasons no one can explain, Ross, the Commerce Secretary, said it was, quote, 
something like 20% of the entire Syrian Air Force. Then on Monday of this week, Defense Secretary Mike Mattis said it was 20% of all the operational aircraft in the Syrian Air Force. On Tuesday, Mattis clarified it was 20 planes. So there you have it, the Trump administration's assessment on what our bombing mission accomplished in Syria until it changes again. But we have video that shows Syrian planes taking off from that airbase just hours after the American bombing from the airbase that launched the sarin attack. As South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham put it, it was al-Assad's way of saying F you to Donald Trump. And then there's Trump's Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who went to Moscow this week to get tough with Russia on its backing of the Syrian government, its invasion of Crimea, and its meddling in elections in the U.S. and Europe. Tillerson didn't exactly set the stage for tough talks by asking publicly the day before, and I quote, why should American taxpayers care about Ukraine? Then Tillerson went to Moscow to demand that it get out of Ukraine? Even after he did hundreds of billions of dollars in business with Russia? Even after Vladimir Putin gave him that friendship medal? Tillerson's visit with Russian officials, including Vladimir Putin, did not go well. Tillerson saying afterwards that U.S.-Russia relations were at a new low. His understaffed State Department tried to put a more positive spin on things by saying that the U.S. and Russia had agreed that the U.N. should investigate that sarin attack in Syria. But then Russia used its Security Council veto power to stop that U.N. investigation before it could even start. Mr. Tillerson's trip to Moscow appears to have ended in failure, yet another failure in what appears to be a disheveled administration, all after cozying up to Russia during the campaign, now saying that relations with Moscow are at an all-time low. After candidate Trump swore he could get along with Putin, Russia is now a sworn enemy. The latest events distanced Trump a bit from the Russia election scandal, but at the expense of endangering world peace as Trump confronts both Russia and North Korea. And then there's White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer. He may be a very smart man, but you wouldn't know it from his news conferences and other public statements. As a guy who speaks for the most powerful man in the world, most agree Spicer's not doing it right, or well, at all. Spicer would appear to be vastly undereducated on a number of issues vital to the knowledge of a White House press secretary. His screw-ups are almost uncountable, and these are not one-offs. He repeats his mistakes interminably. He calls the dictator of Syria Bashad al-Ashar instead of the real name Bashar al-Assad. Seems like something he ought to know. Spicer calls the president of our close ally Australia Mr. Trumbull when the man's name is Turnbull. When talking about terrorism, Spicer repeatedly mentions Atlanta when what he clearly means to say is Orlando. But should we have to decode statements from a presidential spokesman? And Spicer calls the president's daily briefing a PBD, even though that's the wrong acronym. It's PDB for President's Daily Brief. Never before has a White House press secretary made so many mistakes so consistently or shown this level of incompetence. Never has a White House spokesman uttered the kind of comments Spicer stuttered out this week, indicating that al-Assad's gassing of 70 people was worse than anything Hitler did, despite Hitler's gassing of 6 million Jews. Hitler, said Spicer, was, quote, not using gas on his own people. And Spicer said that at Passover. The hapless Spicer made three attempts to clarify his statement and ultimately had to apologize after calls for Spicer's firing. And Spicer even screwed that up. He told CNN he was apologizing because he didn't want to, quote, distract from the president's decisive action in Syria and the attempts he's making to destabilize the region. Never before has a White House spokesman described his president as destabilizing. And then there's Trump himself, who after meeting with NATO's secretary general now says, quote, NATO is no longer obsolete as if it ever was as Trump reversed himself on this, too. Never before have we witnessed this level of ineptitude in our executive branch. It makes the incompetence a bigger story than even the possible collusion with Russia during the election campaigns. We may ultimately learn that any collusion may have been based more in incompetence than in corruption. Time will tell. Shortly after my last report was uploaded, 
Devin Nunes stepped down from the House Intelligence Committee investigation into ties between Trump and Russia. Nunes, who had campaigned for Trump and worked on his transition team, had proved more loyal to the president than to the investigation when he used the cover of night to get some weak Trump-supporting evidence from a couple of White House aides and then, bypassing his fellow committee members, took it to the media and then the president, even though the president was just a few steps away from those White House aides who could have given it to Trump themselves. And in the days that followed, Nunes recusing himself from the House-Russia investigation, we learned that Nunes himself is now under investigation for apparently disclosing classified information when he claimed to have seen evidence that proved Trump correct about the surveillance of Trump campaign officials. And we've learned that both Democrats and Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee investigation believe that Nunes also lied about what he claims he saw. Despite Nunes' apparent intention of backing up Trump's wiretapping claim, Nunes' stunt failed to distract from the Russia investigations, which will now continue, even as Trump gets his way at the Supreme Court and in other political arenas. Nunes' role in the House investigation, we're told, will now be filled by three other Republicans on the panel. So, as lawmakers wrap up their two-week spring break, the Trump-Russia investigation continues, as do its counterparts in the Senate and at the FBI. And these investigations continue to cast a shadow over everything this administration does. And just because Congress has been away for two weeks doesn't mean there are not new developments. There are at the FBI, where they have now opened a special unit, a central command for the Trump-Russia investigation. The Bureau has just arrested a Russian spammer, one of the world's top cyber criminals, when that Russian spammer made the mistake of taking his family on a vacation to Spain, which has an extradition treaty with the U.S. Spanish police arrested Piotr Yuryevich Levishov at the request of the U.S., and maybe not just for operating a virus that's been infecting tens of thousands of Windows computers around the world for the past seven years. His wife says he was arrested for, in her words, something about a virus linked to Trump winning the elections. She made herself clear about that, repeating it to various reporters. The FBI isn't talking, but we have learned that the Bureau is investigating whether Trump aides were helping Russia even before that first hack on the Democrats back in March. Investigating that collusion, if it occurred, maybe started earlier than expected. The CIA was seeing things, too. The New York Times reports that in August, then-CIA Director John Brennan was so alarmed by the evidence of Russian meddling in the campaigns, he alerted and individually briefed eight senior members of Congress. And toward the end of August, Brennan told then-Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid that Trump campaign advisors might have been working with Russia very early last year. But the CIA had to drop that part of the case as its investigation began to involve American citizens caught communicating with Russians who were being monitored. The CIA only handles foreign. The FBI handles domestic. So the FBI investigation continues now with the arrest of that Russian spammer. The FBI isn't talking about it, not publicly, not officially. So investigative journalists are picking up what they can and reporting it. And they're doing a very good job. Washington Post reporters have now seen and shared some of what Devin Nunes may have seen. They report last summer the FBI got more than one secret warrant to electronically monitor Trump's foreign policy advisor, Carter Page. To get that warrant, Justice Department prosecutors had to convince a FISA judge there was probable cause, enough evidence to go forward with that part of their investigation. The secret court granted their request and issued that warrant, feeling it had seen enough. And the intelligence court renewed that warrant at least once, maybe more than once, but only after those prosecutors were able to show that their investigation was bearing fruit. The prosecutors told the court they believe Carter Page, quote, knowingly engaged in clandestine intelligence activities on behalf of Moscow. Earlier reports, including this journal last week, reported that Page had been identified in court documents as male number one in recorded conversations between two Russian spies. The spies had congratulated each other on successfully recruiting Page, one of them calling Page an idiot. 
At first, prosecutors thought perhaps Page had been unwittingly recruited because that's how it so often happens. Now they're saying he knowingly engaged for the Russians and that these two spies were not his only Russian contacts. Page had, after all, done $25 billion in business with Russia, had tried to learn to speak and write Russian, and even spoke fondly of Vladimir Putin, even went to Russia, even after Russia's interference in our election campaign was already public knowledge. And Page was one of Trump's first choices among possible national security and foreign policy advisors. Somebody wanted us to know all of this. What we learned this week about U.S. intelligence tracking Carter Page comes from the most secret court in all the land, a court created after 9-11 known as FISA. And normally what happens at FISA stays at FISA. It protects some of the country's most closely held secrets. Normally. But somebody wanted us to know this, especially after House Intel Committee Chairman Devin Nunes had selectively spilled some of those beans. And the Associated Press reports that former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, who also had ties with Russia, did get the payments outlined in a ledger once kept secret by a former Ukrainian president who was backed by Russia. Manafort appears to have lied when he told reporters last summer that the ledger that was found was fake. But the intrepid reporters at AP have now financial records showing Manafort's consulting firm got well over a million dollars in payments from that Ukrainian president transactions matching the dates in that once secret ledger that Manafort called fake. In an afterthought attempt at covering himself legally, Manafort responded to the AP report this week by finally registering himself as a foreign agent for Ukraine, something he was legally required to do long ago. The House and Senate investigations resume next week as the Trump administration and its friends in the House and Senate and Supreme Court continue checking off their wish lists. Last week at this time, Trump's new Justice Department under Jeff Sessions was arguing against the order by Obama's Justice Department that Baltimore spend millions to reform its police department after the killing of Freddie Gray and the ugliness that followed. The Trump Justice Department has now lost its argument. A federal judge ignoring Sessions' concern that spending money on reform would leave the city less money to spend on protecting its citizens. Instead, the judge listened to Baltimore and ratified the agreement that the city had already made with the Obama administration and said the judge, quote, the time for negotiating is over. The new Justice Department has just lost its first big case. But Sessions carries on with his opposition to police reform and to police science the voice of science is being silenced in the Trump administration. Sessions has just ended a partnership with forensic evidence scientists that was started by the Obama White House. That partnership brought in judges, scientists, crime lab officials, prosecutors, and defense lawyers to try to help the system work better. Trump's attorney general has told that panel, thanks but no thanks and you are excused. And despite its failures and weaknesses and apparent corruption, the Trump administration marches forward now with its mass deportation of undocumented residents. That story, a commentary from Bob Seska, and more after this. It is crucial, now more than ever, that you show your support for this newscast by doing as much of your shopping as possible through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. You'll land right on your very own Amazon page and get the same great prices as always. If you believe in what I'm doing here, what we're doing together, it's extremely important that you go to buzzburbank.com, click on that link, and then bookmark the page to make it one of your favorites. Whether you're already a Prime member or you're shopping Amazon for the first time, going through that link even just once helps sustain this program. Amazon has nearly everything you need right to your door and in two days or less for Prime members. I cannot say enough about how much I enjoy Amazon Prime Video, which comes with the Prime membership along with music and books and more. And please, use my Amazon link if you make purchases for your office, school, church, or some other organization. To those of you who already shop through my link, thank you. And if Amazon's not right for you, you can also support this program by simply clicking on the PayPal button just below the Amazon button in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. While some Americans presumably find comfort in what Trump Attorney General Jeff Sessions said this week, Many Americans are a bit shaken 
appearing in Nogales, New Mexico, within eyeshot of Mexico. Sessions said, for those that seek improper entry into this country, be forewarned, this is a new era. This, he said, is the Trump era. Sessions continued with fear-inducing talk about gangs and cartels that turn American cities and suburbs into, quote, war zones, where he said they, quote, rape and kill innocent citizens. It is on this sliver of land, said Sessions, where we first take our stand against this filth. Sessions instructed federal prosecutors to pursue felony charges and prison for anyone who's entered the U.S. illegally more than once. But one of Sessions' prosecutors says his office can't handle that many cases. The U.S. attorney for Arizona says the courts would be overflowing, that what we really need is a reform of immigration laws. A U.S. attorney for Western Washington State says fulfilling Sessions' order would require her to stop pursuing terrorism, drug crime, cybercrime, and mob activity. And if our federal prosecutors think that's overwhelming... Now, the administration's reportedly working quickly to find ways to assemble the mass deportation program that Trump promised during the campaign. The Washington Post got hold of a Homeland Security assessment that shows the Trump administration has already found 33,000 more beds in detention facilities and that it started talks with local police departments about deputizing their officers to help round up and lock up enough people to fill those beds. It's heaped new fears upon an already nervous, undocumented community of 11 million people. Trump's already instructed the Border Patrol to hire 5,000 new agents, told immigration to hire another 10,000. It would cost $100 million to hire just 500 new agents. Trump's called for 15,000. And the administration has already decided where to start building Trump's wall, a project for which Congress won't likely approve spending, and one that Mexico says it will not pay for, as Trump promised it would during the campaign. So is the immigration problem big enough to deserve the Trump administration's response to it and the taxpayer money he wants to spend? Illegal border crossings have declined over the past eight years, and they dropped another 72% when Trump was sworn in. Currently, more Mexicans are returning to their home country at a rate faster than those coming here. Mexican immigration is now in negative numbers. The Trump administration has chosen to attack illegal immigration when it's already at its lowest point and at unbelievable costs. Still, Trump and Sessions have their agenda, which also includes cutting off federal funding to cities that serve as sanctuaries for undocumented refugees and immigrants. Build that wall, Trump supporters chanted at his campaign rallies last summer. And Trump said that he would. And if you asked him or any of his supporters who would pay for that wall, their answer came quickly, Mexico. And when he took office, Trump signed an executive order demanding that the wall be built. Even during the campaign, Trump himself admitted American taxpayers would have to cover the cost until he can figure out just how he's going to make Mexico pay without driving up our prices for working Americans with an import tax. And now we're learning that if or when a wall is built, it will not cover the entire U.S. border with Mexico. In the words of Trump's own Homeland Security chief, it's unlikely, impractical, and unnecessary. There are practical considerations, including the Rio Grande River, shared by Mexico and Texas, which makes up more than half of that international border. We haven't heard whether the wall would be built on one side of the river, since it likely won't be built in the middle of the river. Border crossings are down for the fifth straight month, and Mexican immigration has all but stopped, so even Trump's homeland security chief has doubts about whether it's needed. Still, the president is set on that wall. He signed the order, and the government's already taking bids from architects, even though it hasn't got the money yet. But with both his immigration orders struck down in court, with no way to pay for a wall that may not be needed, And with opposition from both Democrats and Republicans, the wall Trump promised might never happen. And this is the time of year they're normally flooded with visa applications of the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. American companies often pay the processing fees and pay a little extra to get their paperwork expedited. But the agency has now suspended that expediting processing program, denying immigration from collecting a lot of the money that helps fund its work. 
for those American companies, the wait time just went from two weeks to eight months. The program had to be suspended because this particular immigration agency had run out of money for this program, having already spent it all in an effort to digitize the immigration process. That effort cost over two and a third billion dollars and failed. The project is already a billion dollars over budget and five years behind schedule. There is no digitized system and there is no two and a third billion dollars. And now the agency's cash cow doesn't have enough cash to bring in more cash. A former immigration official calls this mismanagement and waste, stupid and reckless. If the program remains suspended for six months, as expected, immigration will miss all of the income from nearly a quarter million visa applications. That's about $100 million that will have to be made up by taxpayers. It also means delays in research at American universities and technological delays in American businesses. The Trump administration has also apparently tried to silence one of its many immigration policy critics. Twitter reports that one week ago today, the Trump White House demanded to know who's behind an account that's been especially critical of Trump and U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. That may be a clue, since the user of the account has copped to being a government employee. But that wasn't enough info for the Trump White House, so it turned to Twitter to demand that the user's identity be revealed. The Trump White House didn't just want the identity. It wanted the login name, the user's phone number, street address, and IP address. Twitter only releases such information to assist law enforcement catch a bad guy, not in cases where the issue is free speech. So Twitter not only refused the Trump demand, it turned around and filed a lawsuit against the Trump administration, Homeland Security, and Homeland Security Secretary, the Customs and Border Protection, and two of its special agents. And the ACLU said it would fight for the Twitter account user in court in a First Amendment case. Perhaps in embarrassment, the White House withdrew its demand, and Twitter dropped its lawsuit. So the White House effort to silence a critic has so far failed. All the White House knows is that he or she is still out there somewhere. While some reporters are doing a great job covering this administration, others not so much. That irritates Salon.com blogger and Realm Network host Bob Seska to see some national reporters tripping over themselves to try to be fair and balanced while covering the Trump administration. I'll leave it to Bob to explain. Thank you, Buzz. For nearly two years now, we followed the incomprehensibly remedial political life of Donald Trump. For nearly two years, we've observed in shocked horror at episode after episode in which Trump is engulfed in controversies of his own making, only to be given chance after chance after chance to redeem himself, unlike nearly every other worldwide public figure, political or otherwise. No matter how often President Trump whines and hurls tantrums on Twitter about the quote-unquote dishonest media and the fake news it publishes, the television press has gifted him with unprecedented latitude, his very own set of political rules devised by Trump and implemented by the cable news media. Actually, I hesitate to call them rules because the word suggests there are limits to and punishments for Trump's behavior. Anyone following his greatest hits knows there aren't any at least in comparison with the rules applied to previous presidents, not to mention the Democratic nominee whom Trump barely defeated last year. This partially illiterate New York socialite turned reality show punchline continues to be given opportunity after opportunity to behave in a reasonable, rational way by knee-jerk pundits who appear to be desperate to artificially endow Trump with presidential qualities. His version of presidential lasts about 12 seconds and is barely more presidential than how a tween bully behaves when running for class president. Whether describing his banal off-the-rack address to Congress last month or his transparently political missile strike against a Syrian airbase, more than a few actors in the cable news sphere can't wait to normalize and legitimize Trump, only to be castrated by the president hours or days later. Trump's ineffectual cruise missile strike against that Sherat airfield when 59 missiles constructed by Raytheon, a military contractor whose stock Trump has owned, caused marginal damage, allowing Bashar al-Assad to launch new airstrikes from the base the very next day. Cable news channels were buzzing with declarations of Trump's freshly acquired savoir faire as a sober and decisive leader. 
NBC News reporter Kristen Welker said she thought Trump had, quote-unquote, turned a page in his presidency. Quote, this is a president who is coming off a rocky couple of weeks. Arguably, he's turned the page on that to some extent with these foreign leader meetings that he's had this week and now with the focus on Syria. Elliot Abrams wrote in the Weekly Standard that, quote, the Trump administration can truly be said to have started only now. The president has been chief executive since January 20, but this week he acted also as commander in chief and more. He finally accepted the role of leader of the free world. Fox News Channel's Carl Higby observed, quote, huge victory. All the people I have spoken to recently, active and former, have all said that this was Donald Trump's first test and he absolutely nailed it. On Friday night's Real Time with Bill Maher, CNN's Anna Navarro qualified her praise for Trump, yet endowed him with a role neither he nor any president possesses. Navarro said, quote, I still think he is a racist, misogynist, lying pig, but he's also my commander in chief. Apologies for nitpicking, but the president isn't Navarro's commander in chief, nor is he the commander in chief of any American civilian. He's strictly the commander in chief of the military. Nothing more. Please stop giving him ideas like this. Thank you. CNN's Fareed Zakaria has been widely and justifiably mocked as the worst of the batch, having declared, quote, I think Donald Trump became president of the United States with this ineffectual strike. The only excuse I can think of for this brand of unearned fluffing other than submissiveness or masochism is that certain members of the press continue to genuflect before the both sides attitude. These are transparently weak attempts to generate some sense of cosmetic balance in the coverage of a president who, no matter what he says or does now, is still under numerous federal investigations for colluding with Russia to hijack the 2016 election. And the headlines about Russia make up only a part of the roster of manifest reasons why Trump shouldn't have been allowed to tour the White House, much less run the nation from the Oval Office. A monkey can order a missile strike, and Trump kind of screwed this one up. He hit a few inconsequential items on the checklist, managing to avoid upwards of 100 Russian personnel who were on hand at the base for some still unexplained reason, but he failed to take out any chemical weapons, which I thought was the point of sticking our noses into a civil war that hasn't involved any attacks against the United States. And let's say this again. Syrian fighter jets were taking off from Sharat the next day. Oh, and Trump's attack reportedly managed to kill seven civilians, including four children. You had one job, Mr. President. All in all, my biggest objection to the recent intervention in Syria, he's also secretly put boots on the ground there, by the way, is the fact that it's being carried out by this tabloid weirdo with cartoon hair named Donald Trump. It's like finding out your bypass surgery is being performed by Gary Busey and the pilot for your cross-country flight will be Meatloaf. Trump is in no way equipped with any of the qualities of a strong leader. He's a petulant, obnoxious, intellectually incurious doofus who needed four tries before correctly spelling the word hereby. He and his worthless somnambulant secretary of state don't have a Syria policy beyond lamenting Assad's murdering of babies on one hand while blocking other Syrian babies from seeking refuge from Assad inside the United States. Everything Donald Trump touches turns to crap sooner or later. As American warships steam toward the Korean Peninsula, we must not forget the myriad disasters and irreparable destabilization he's responsible for. And the worst is yet to come. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Catch his show Tuesdays and Thursdays, The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Are American businesses less optimistic than they were when Trump first took office? We added jobs last month, but fewer than half as many jobs as we'd added in the two months before that. Instead of the nearly 200,000 new jobs economists expected and that we've been adding month after month, last month we got 98,000 instead. Still, the unemployment rate fell to a 10-year low of 4.5%, and hourly wages ticked up by a nickel to an average of $26.14 an hour. So income is up a bit and official unemployment is down, but with half as many new jobs. With such a weak jobs outlook, the Fed is likely to pass on its next scheduled increase in interest rates. After denying a sitting president his duty to fill a vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court and after keeping that slot open for 14 months, Republicans have finally achieved their dream of a conservative Supreme Court. Neil Gorsuch was sworn in this week, giving conservatives a 5-4 to four majority. 
To achieve their goal, Republicans threw out the rule book again and again, starting with the argument that Obama didn't have the authority to appoint a justice because he only had a year left on his term. The real reason, of course, was that Obama was a Democrat, the one they particularly didn't like. That tantrum broke decades of precedent, Republicans refusing to even meet with Obama's moderate judge, much less vote on him, holding out hope instead that a Republican would be elected president so they could get that conservative majority. It was a gamble that paid off for conservatives. And then, instead of nominating a moderate judge, as presidents usually do to get them approved, this president nominated a clearly right-wing judge with a history of favoring corporations over people. And when Republicans saw, even with their Senate majority, that they still couldn't get the 60 votes needed to achieve their lifelong dream, they changed the rules, allowing a confirmation with just 51 votes. Gorsuch got 52. The rule change, unless it's changed back, changes the Senate and our government forever. It means that whichever party is in power from now on, that party now has the ability to ram through cabinet secretaries and Supreme Court justices who will occupy those seats for the rest of their lives. It means whichever party's in the White House no longer has to choose a moderate for the job opening and can instead choose someone with extremely right-wing or extremely left-wing views. And in the case of a president facing a Congress of the opposing party, that president won't get any nominations at all, ever for anything. The majority won't just rule, it will dominate with less regard for the voice of the minority, which had always been an important facet of American democracy. It took some bending, breaking, and removing of rules, but Republicans finally got their conservative Supreme Court, and Americans can expect it to stay that way for decades. Gorsuch is already at work today deciding which cases to start hearing on the first Monday in October. Possible cases include those that affect voting rights, gay rights, and the legality of Trump's Muslim bans. Although most Americans have no idea who Neil Gorsuch is, they undoubtedly know about the man dragged off a United Airlines flight, not because he'd done anything wrong, but because United wanted to take his reserved seat away from him and give it to a crew member it needed to relocate. As most of us know by now, the man was a doctor with patients to see the next morning, so he refused to give up his seat from a plane headed out of Chicago's O'Hare International Airport. United called in security, and a trio of airport police pulled the man out of his seat, beat him bloody, and dragged him up the aisle to the main exit. Fellow passengers gasped in horror at the brutality, and some spoke up, which is a risky thing to do on an airplane or in an airport. Speaking up can get you what the doctor got. Once the world had seen the cell phone video of this ugly event, United CEO expressed regret, sort of, but he strongly defended the airline's response, calling the victim disruptive and belligerent. At first, United CEO Oscar Munoz said the flight crew on that plane made the right call in calling security and assured all of the airline's crew members that he stands behind them. That response also got slammed on social media, and eventually Munoz would apologize publicly, saying, no one should ever be mistreated that way. In his second and third statements, Munoz said his company takes full responsibility for what happened and promised to, quote, fix this. He'd better. His airline lost a billion dollars of its stock value after the incident, although it has since recovered some of that. Wall Street investors were concerned, not about the brutality, of course, but about the likely passenger backlash against United and its profits. But the backlash may be greatest among Asian Americans and Asians around the world, since the doctor in this case is either Chinese or Vietnamese. And people around the world are tearing up their United cards, vowing to never fly that airline again. Although airlines are required to offer compensation, airlines are allowed to bump passengers from flights without any explanation, so this could theoretically happen to anyone, and it does. United's being urged to move its personnel on private planes in the future or move them by car, as they could have in this case, instead of bumping reserved passengers. Whatever United is deciding, the airline says it will stop turning to police to remove overbooked passengers, and it's refunding the airfares for everyone on the flight involving the passenger beating. 
Chicago aviation officials, meanwhile, are not standing behind the officers who dragged the doctor off the plane. All three officers have now been placed on leave while the incident is investigated. It's been called a public relations nightmare for United, and it's not over yet. That roughed-up passenger is now suing United and asking the court to seize all cockpit communications and the flight manifest, as well as the names of those officers. Companies can bounce back from even the worst screw-ups. Samsung, despite its flaming phones and exploding washing machines, says it's now on track to have its best profit margin in four years. More on United, if you can believe it, later in this report. Now, a second court has ruled that the Texas voter ID law violates the Voting Rights Act by intentionally discriminating against black and Hispanic voters. The Texas law requires a government-approved ID from all who vote and banishes eligible voters who don't have those IDs. Now, a second federal court has ruled that Texas did this on purpose to keep minorities away from the polls, minorities often being Democratic voters, in this case, in a very Republican state. If these court rulings survive their inevitable appeals, Texas could again find itself on a list of states that can't make any changes to its voter laws without going through the federal government first. That may not be a problem for Texas, however, as the government now evaluating its laws would be the Trump government, which has already made it clear it has no interest in overturning voter ID laws or in enforcing the Voting Rights Act. April is here, and Arkansas was all set to carry out eight executions in ten days, two a day on four separate days. Why the rush? Because Arkansas finally got its hands on enough midazolam to kill some of its death row inmates, and because what little it has found has an expiration date of April 30th. Midazolam has been hard for states to acquire. Drug companies stopped selling it after one particular botched execution. Arkansas's first two of seven executions are set for Monday. The last two are set for April 27th, or were, just three days before the midazolam expires. But now, one of those last two planned executions has been postponed thanks to a federal judge's ruling. In the case of Jason McGeehee, the state's parole board has recommended that McGeehee not only not be executed, but that he should instead get provisional clemency. And the judge says Arkansas's rush to use up its death drug by a deadline doesn't give McGeehee enough time to petition for that clemency. The law says he should get 30 days to petition. So now it'll be seven killings in 10 days, not eight, unless the state finds a suitable substitute for McGeehee. Death penalty opponents say even that schedule is grotesque, one of them calling it assembly line killing. In Ohio, meanwhile, a second court has ruled that the Buckeye State's new lethal drug protocol is not legal. That ruling has delayed three more executions. Ohio was planning on using midazolam as part of a three-drug cocktail. Now two courts have ruled that this particular cocktail is likely to cause pain and therefore constitute the cruel and unusual punishment that is banned by the U.S. Constitution. This fight may not be over. Ohio's methods could wind up before the U.S. Supreme Court. Among its other supposed functions, the death penalty is meant to bring closure to the families and victims of deadly violence. One mother in Arkansas told reporters this week she would finally be able to rest once her daughter's killer was put to death. Research shows she will not rest better. People working with actual victims' families found they did not find closure in the execution of their loved one's killer. That same research found that the survivors who did find peace did so by meeting their killer face-to-face -face and forgiving them. It's what the survivors of the Charleston church killings did, and it's what's being done by a family of a murder victim in Texas. Glenn and Judy Cherry lost their 28-year-old son when he was shot to death while playing miniature golf. Longtime opponents of capital punishment, the Cherries have now asked that their son's killer not be put to death but instead be given the life sentence that they didn't even know was an option. Even the jury, or at least one of its members, didn't know that life in prison was an option and only voted for the execution not knowing that his one vote could have stopped it. The Cherries say the important thing is that this killer never kills again. 
Quoting a statement from the couple, Paul Story's execution will not bring back our son, will not atone for the loss, and will not bring comfort or closure. After their request for mercy for the killer, his execution has been canceled. The families of the victims of the racially motivated Charleston church shooting two years ago will not have to sit through another long trial of confessed killer Dylan Roof. This week, Roof took a plea deal from South Carolina prosecutors that gave him life in prison without parole in exchange for his guilty pleas to nine counts of murder, three counts of attempted murder, and a firearms violation. And the trial would have been moot anyway since Roof is already sentenced to die in a federal electric chair but he is now 63rd in line for federal execution. Roof, who failed in his attempt to start a race war, said when he was sentenced, I felt like I had to do it, and I still feel like I had to do it. Chicago has certainly had more than its share of gun violence, but so now has San Bernardino, California, about an hour east of Los Angeles. This week, a man checked in at the front desk in an elementary school, proceeded to his estranged wife's classroom, and pulled out a gun. He spoke not a word. He killed his wife and an eight-year-old boy who was near her. He also critically wounded a nine-year-old boy and then turned the gun on himself, taking his own life. There was a 41% increase in the number of murders in San Bernardino last year, the deadliest year in over two decades. And that's even after 14 people were shot to death in a homegrown terror attack in San Bernardino at the end of 2015. Earlier this year, the Republican Congress passed and Trump signed a bill that allows people with severe mental illness to purchase and own guns. We were reminded over the weekend of our vulnerability to hackers, and we were reminded that not all hacks are digital Dallas, Texas, biggest city in Tornado Alley, was without an emergency siren system throughout the weekend after a hacker set it off willy-nilly on Friday night. Over the course of that night, all 156 of the city's tornado and civil defense sirens blared several times each. City officials were forced to shut down the entire system. Police are dedicated to finding the hacker, who they believe is in the Dallas area. That infrastructure attack didn't come from Russia, China, or North Korea this time. And it wasn't digital. It was old-school analog hacking. This is the second time in a year the city of Dallas has been hacked with no Internet involvement. It happened last summer. Road signs that normally give traffic information had been reprogrammed to campaign for Bernie Sanders, with one sign simply reading, Donald Trump is a shape-shifting lizard. Those hacks were on site. Somebody broke the lock on the sign's control boxes and simply typed in replacement messages. The siren hacking of this past weekend was done by radio transmissions. The broadcasting of just the right combination of touch tones on just the right radio frequency. And it could happen again since cities are not spending what they should be on Internet technology and spending even less on security measures to protect their infrastructures. And that's scary, since a different set of touchtones on a different frequency can, in many cities, shut off the water supply or open a dam. United Airlines' other blunders. A sex-crazed 74-year-old governor goes to jail, losing Jay Giles and Letterman's mom and more in the third and final segment. Up next, this is a familiar story about a company that started much the same way as the network that brings you this newscast. But this story is about a couple of college students who wanted the kind of stylish watches they were seeing on others, but like a lot of college kids, they were broke. See, nothing that stylish with any kind of quality was affordable. A little research revealed that quality and fashion don't have to be expensive if you cut out the middleman and sell direct to you online. So, little by little, they started their own watch company in much the same way we started this network. Even their company's name is high fashion, MVMT for movement. People will ask about your movement watch with its classic design, minimalist style, and quality construction. Now, these are watches that would normally sell in a department store for four or five hundred bucks, but movement makes them yours starting at just 95 bucks with free shipping and free returns. That's why Movement is the world's fastest-growing watch company, with millions sold now in over 160 countries around the world. And because you listen to this program, you 
Get another 15% off that already amazing price. Just go to mvmtwatches.com slash R-E-L-M. Be like us. Join the movement. mvmtwatches.com slash R-E-L-M. Although the doctor dragging incident is the one that got all the attention, United Airlines also had to apologize this week to a man bumped from first class to coach when he was told his reserved seat was going for a higher priority passenger. United also had to apologize for kicking a man off a flight for having his cello in the seat next to him, a seat he had purchased for the cello. They told him he couldn't have his bass fiddle on board. It isn't a bass fiddle, he explained. It's a cello. United's tough-as-nails employees, backed by their tough-as-nails CEO, refused to listen. And they refused to listen when 46-year-old professional musician John Kaboff told them that, according to their own airline's flight manual, a cello is allowed on a 737. They refused to listen when he told them he had flown with his cello over a dozen times on their airline and had only run into trouble once before. No bass fiddles allowed, they insisted. They told him to either leave and take his bass fiddle with him or be removed by the aforementioned airport security guys. It's a cello, he muttered as he exited the plane. After he posted about this on social media, the airline apologized, put the cellist on the very next flight to his destination, and refunded the $150 he had paid for that second seat for his cello. Only this time the airline referred to it as his musical instrument. It's a cello. So what we learn is that United Airlines doesn't know public relations, doesn't know its own handbooks, and doesn't know jack about cellos. Imagine growing up in one foster home after another, mopping the lunchroom floor at school so the cafeteria workers might give you a piece of bread and cheese since you can't afford your lunch. Now imagine the other students seeing you work for the lunches they take for granted. New Mexico State Senator Mike Padilla didn't have to imagine it. He lived it. Even recently, in some schools, students are made to do lunchroom chores to earn their lunch because their parents had not paid for their lunches. In some schools, students are hand-stamped or forced to wear bracelets that keep them from getting lunch and telegraph their situation to other students. It's called lunch shaming. Cafeteria workers don't like it either. One in Colorado says she was fired for feeding a first grader who didn't have his lunch money. In Pennsylvania, a cafeteria worker quit after she had to obey orders to take meals away from two students. It's happening all over the country, but it won't happen anymore in New Mexico thanks to a new law pushed by Mike Padilla and now signed by the state's governor. New Mexico is the first state to pass such a law, banning lunch shaming, forced labor, and the denial of food to hungry students. And it won't likely be the last. Outside of Illinois, it's not often a governor gets arrested and taken to jail. But it happened this week in Alabama. Republican Governor and Dr. Robert Bentley was arrested on charges of violating campaign finance laws, but that almost gets lost in the sex scandal. As a 74-year-old governor, Bentley is also accused of having an extramarital affair with a top political advisor and of using taxpayer and campaign money to cover it up. Bentley is accused of misusing Alabama state troopers to assist in the cover-up, as Bentley was also facing impeachment hearings that were scheduled for this week. In the end, prosecutors agreed not to charge Bentley with any felonies if he would plead guilty to two misdemeanors, resign as governor, and more. Bentley also has to give up the thirty-six grand that remains in his campaign fund and promise to never run for public office ever, ever again. And he has to pay back the taxpayers for the $9,000 he misspent covering up his lustful office romance. And he had to pay a $600 bond to get out of jail where he had been locked up to await trial for those campaign finance violation charges. Bentley had almost made it through two terms as Alabama's governor, an office he had held for seven years. His real undoing was when his wife found a text thread on an iPad that reflected the conversation Bentley had been having with his mistress through his iPhone. Ultimately, she recorded phone calls between the two, and eventually 
Those recordings were made public after the governor and his first lady divorced. Bentley refused to resign for the longest time, right up to his arrest and his failure to scrap this week's impeachment hearings. He tried but failed at that. Bentley held on to his office for dear life, but finally left it with a smile. It was coverage by a local investigative reporter that led to Bentley's exit from the governor's mansion. The California drought that lasted for six years killed something like 100 million trees, killed wildlife, and disrupted the delivery of drinking water to communities throughout the state. After declaring a drought emergency, Californians cut their water use by nearly one-fourth. The emergency is now over, according to the governor who declared it in the first place. But, says Jerry Brown, the next drought could be around the corner. Conservation must remain a way of life. In pop science this week, if you think elephants don't know their own strength or have no idea just how big they are, you're wrong. A new study says elephants have body awareness that they know their physical limitations, unlike other animals, adding to the evidence that elephants are even more intelligent than we believed. Despite that, elephants are near the top of our endangered species list. But science also discovered this week that it's not your fault when your shoes come untied. The study at UC Berkeley found that the whipping force on the shoestrings as you walk gradually pulls them loose from your bow, even if you've tied it tightly. Researchers recommend you use a square knot instead of a granny knot. When last we met, I reported that Tesla had surpassed Ford as the most valuable car company in the U.S. Well, that news is already outdated. Tesla is now America's second most valuable car company, worth more than even General Motors. It had been only a week after topping Ford that Tesla also topped GM. Tesla is now worth over $51 billion. Up $3 billion from the week before, Tesla has to increase in value another $3 billion to top the number one American car company, the Japanese Honda. Tesla stock is worth over 300 bucks a share. You know, the only way to get your baby to sleep is put it in the car and go for a drive. Something about the vibration and the hum of the car pushes babies into dreamland. But in the dead of winter, you can't spend time you should all be sleeping to warm up the car and put on warm outerwear. Ford has a better idea. Ford, with the help of a Latin creative studio, has created a new crib that simulates the sights, sounds, and feels of a nighttime drive. You can even sync it to your smartphone to simulate the way it sounds in your car, in your neighborhood, with just the right amount of traffic. You can even add the sound of rain, if that helps. Sadly, there's only one such crib in existence right now, and it isn't for sale. It's a raffle prize for any of the customers test-driving a vehicle from Ford's new Max line. But Ford says it's thinking about mass-producing the thing since it's hearing extreme interest from around the world. In passings and passages this week, John Warren Giles Jr., Jay Giles of the Jay Giles Band to you, died at the age of 71 after bringing us danceable pop hits in the 80s, including Freeze Frame and My Angel is a Centerfold. And the woman who never stopped pretending to be disappointed in her son's failure to land The Tonight Show and tried to teach him to cook and covered the Olympics for us has died. Dorothy Mengering, Mrs. Letterman passed this week at the age of 95. Here's this week's movie preview from Realm Network Arts and Entertainment editor Omar Latiri, brought to you by Fandango. Opening this weekend, April 14th, 2017. There are three limited release movies of note. First, there's A Quiet Passion, the story of American poet Emily Dickinson from her early days as a young schoolgirl to her later years as a reclusive, unrecognized artist. Starring Cynthia Nixon as Emily Dickinson, A Quiet Passion is rated PG-13. There's also Tommy's Honor, the story of Tommy Morris, a young golfing champion in mid-19th century Scotland. Tackling the issues of family, love, and class through the world of golf, Tommy's Honor is rated PG. And there's Jeremiah Tower, The Last Magnificent, a documentary about Jeremiah Tower, perhaps the first celebrity chef. 
It examines how his career through the 70s and 80s influenced not only American food, but American culture as a whole. Containing interviews with celebrities such as Mario Batali, Martha Stewart, and Anthony Bourdain, who also serves as executive producer, Jeremiah Tower, The Last Magnificent is rated R. In wide release, we have The Lost City of Zed, an action-adventure based on the true story of British explorer Colonel Percival Fawcett, who disappeared while searching for a mysterious city in the Amazon in the 1920s. Starring Charlie Hunnam, Robert Pattinson, and Sienna Miller, The Lost City of Zed is rated PG-13. For the kids, there's Spark a Space Tale, an indie animated movie about Spark, a teenage monkey on a mission to regain planet Banna, a kingdom overtaken by the evil overlord Zong. And finally, we have The Fate of the Furious, the last installment of the Fast and the Furious franchise. Vin Diesel, Dwayne Johnson, Michelle Rodriguez, and Jason Statham are back as the crew face trials that will test them as never before. Again. Rated PG-13. For Buzz Burbank News and Comment, I'm Omar Latiri. Thanks, Omar. For theaters and showtimes near you, previews, tickets, and so much more, and to support this free news, please use and bookmark the Fandango link you'll find at buzzburbank.com. And listen to Omar on his show, ARC, Arts Review and Commentary, right here at realmnetwork.com. In other entertainment news... Fox News commentator Bill O'Reilly, after losing dozens of sponsors amid sexual harassment allegations, has left his show for what's described as a two-week vacation. There's speculation as to whether he will ever return. Police in Austin, Texas, have broken up a small massage parlor prostitution ring thanks to a clogged sewer pipe. They had already suspected that Jade Massage Therapy was one of those happy-ending places, a massage was 60 bucks, but the male clientele frequently added tips of anywhere from 40 to $120 for the extras. But the business really got police attention when the owner of the building reported that his building's sewer connection had gotten clogged by hundreds of condoms. Anyone who's ever tried to put a leash on a snake knows that it's, well, you know, it's pointless. But in South Dakota, a man is facing two $95 fines for failing to put his pythons on leashes. He was cited for letting animals run at large. Anyone who's spent any time with a ball python knows they don't move very quickly at all, and they certainly do not run. Jerry Kimball had taken his pair of pythons to a park in Sioux Falls where curious children and adults gathered to ask him questions about snakes. When he set the snakes onto the grass so they could relieve themselves, the animal control officer showed up, naturally. Technically, said the officer, you have to put your snakes on a leash. Sir, said Jerry, they don't make such an item. That's when Jerry got the two $95 tickets. He thought the animal control officer was joking since it was April Fool's Day. The tickets made it clear the officer wasn't joking. For this week's Canadian crime quota, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Manitoba report a major theft just north of Winnipeg. Someone, they say, stole a cell phone tower. The Mounties have asked for the public to be on the lookout for any truck carrying what may appear to be the disassembled parts of the missing tower. At a beachfront restaurant along Australia's Gold Coast, a man about 33 years old had had his fill. He had devoured 17 oyster shooters, an order of octopus, and a couple of lobsters. He washed them down with one beer after another. And then he tried to skip out on the check by jumping into the ocean and swimming away. It was a clear case of splurge and splash. Queensland police shouted orders to the man that he returned. He refused, so they had to go into the water after him. He was forced to pay that $600 dinner check although he did refuse to pay for one of the oysters because he said it had a bit of shell in it. He's also been banned from the restaurant. That's okay, said the seafood swindler. He says the lobster was overcooked anyway, which upset the restaurant manager as much as skipping out on the bill who huffed, we cook our lobsters perfectly here. In Florida, a lot of us have screened enclosures over our little swimming pools to keep out the bugs, gators, and other creatures. Most of the time, the screens do an excellent job. But something crashed through the screening over Leonard Vanderpool's pool the other day. The creature breaking in was a catfish that had fallen from the sky. Looking up, Leonard saw the hole in the overhead screen. Looking down, he saw a bullhead catfish. 
swimming wildly in his pool. Yes, it was still alive. Quoting Leonard, it didn't kill him or anything. It took Leonard a while to convince the police dispatcher he wasn't kidding. Perhaps most unbelievable about this story, the police showed up at the Vanderpool pool to investigate this report. And they removed the fish from the pool, put it into a bucket, and then released it into a local lake where it might again be snatched up by a bird of prey, where it may again sting the bird with its horns and may again be dropped from the sky and may again make it into the Florida files. But our Florida champion this week is the 23-year-old man who returned home in North Fort Myers to discover that his home had been the target of a break-in and burglary. Afraid to enter the house alone, the young man called the sheriff's office to enter it first for him. Officers say the homeowner appeared to be visibly frightened when they arrived. There may be a couple of reasons for that. One might have to do with what the officers found inside, a marijuana growing operation. There were plants in the bedroom, the bathroom, and the living room. Fortunately, there were no guns. The man's gun had been stolen in the break-in, which is why he'd called the deputies. And that indoor pot farm is why officers arrested young Nathan Stone. And finally, you do go to college to learn things, after all. In Thank You, Florida, four students at Gulf Coast University have gotten warnings from the State Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission after they posted a photo of a dead alligator on social media. The gator was roadkill the students had found and thought it might make for some fun pictures from inside their dorm room. It is illegal to possess an alligator in Florida, even a dead one without a special permit. The students confessed to their unwitting crime and surrendered the carcass to Fish and Wildlife, which was able to confirm it was actually roadkill, not the victim of some foul play or other horrible fate. So now the students know what they didn't know before. And you do go to college to learn things after all. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thank you for listening. And thanks for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. Buzz, 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 buzz. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.